Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. Last week we were talking about church membership, and I talked about the phobia of commitment. Uh, we are afraid to commit ourselves because something better may come along. I think there's another phobia that we're dealing with in America today and in the church as well. And that has to do with truth. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we don't like for people to be honest. <laughs> we don't like uh, hearing the truth if it hurts. Stephen Crane, the poet, um, talks about, uses the analogy of a man walking down the path of truth, and he notices that it's covered with weeds, and he goes, well, I guess this path isn't followed very often. And then he notices that every weed on the path has one stalk one blade that literally is a blade, sharp as a razor. And after cutting his feet a couple of times, he decides, maybe there's a better path than this. And I think that's true for a lot of us. We have this tendency at times not to want to have to deal with the truth. And so we look for ways to skirt around it or just get a little bit of it. And what's so sad is that within the church, within Christianity, there are an abundance of people who are more than willing. Actually, they thrive on fulfilling that desire. Peter knew that. This is not a new problem. All the way back to Peter's day, there were people who would tell people what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. Martin Gardner wrote a book called The Flight of Peter Fromm, and it's about a young man who is basically walking away from the gospel to follow a path that was uh, more uh, culturally appropriate to his generation. And his mentor talks about the kind of pastors that we need in the upper-income suburban churches of today. And um, I can't quote the whole thing, but basically he says, pastors today need to learn to be good politicians and be able to say things without offending people. They need to talk about racial prejudice while never letting the people in the congregation think that he's referring to them. Or talk about um, being righteous in the workplace without any businessman feeling guilty. And the line that I remember from that particular part of the book is when he says, the bottom line is a good pastor has to learn how to talk without really saying anything. And there are a lot of people out there just like that. You see, in 2 Peter, we move from the first letter where Peter was getting his followers ready for persecution. Now, several years later, he's writing the second letter. And the problem now is not so much persecution as it is these false teachers. And what they're doing is they are trying to convince these young Christians that the return of Christ is a metaphor. It's not really going to happen. Uh, and believe me, 2,000 years later, there are a bunch of people who feel that way. And so because of that, these false teachers were trying to convince these Christians that the judgment that goes along with Christ's return is something they don't have to worry about. He talks about this in the first part of chapter 2, that they would come along denying the very Christ that saved them. And we have to remember that in biblical times, and really we need to understand this in our times as well, the return of Christ carried two aspects to it. 
On the one hand, there was this excitement about the consummation of God's kingdom, ushering in Jesus as, as, as Lord and Christ, but there was also the understanding that there would also be judgment and that everyone would have to face that, both the unsaved to their eternal separation from God and even we as Christians. So these false teachers were trying to lead people away from that and giving them something that sounded a little bit more palatable to them. Peter had already set the stage. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter wanted them to be established in what? In the truth. He wanted them to know and stand firm in the truth. And then over in chapter 3, Verse 17, at the very end of his letter, after he's talked about these false prophets, he's talked about the return of Christ, all of these things, in chapter uh, 3, verse 17, he finishes up the book by saying, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. Do you hear what Peter's goal is? He wants these Christians to be strong, to be firm, to stand in the truth. That's why he said in chapter 1 he has to continually teach them the gospel, understand the importance of the gospel, understand what the gospel means. So in the verses that we're looking at today, from the second half of verse 10 down to verse 22, we're going to talk about these false teachers. And at the end, we're going to draw some analogies for our lives today. And what's interesting is Peter doesn't start with what they're teaching. You'd think if he's talking about false teachers, he would be telling them all about, they say this, they say this, they say this. But the first thing he does is he talks about their character. And I want to show you three things in verses 10 through about verse 16 about their character before we get into what they actually teach. So, let's dig into the Word. Right here in chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, the first thing he talks about is what they say with their mouths. Let's read again, beginning in the second half of verse 10. Bold, arrogant people. They do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, speak blasphemies about things they don't understand, and in their destruction they too will be destroyed, suffering harm as the payment for unrighteousness. And let's just stop right there. We'll finish the second half of verse 13 in just a second. The first thing Peter tells these Christians about these false teachers is about how they talk. Now, there are a lot of things in these verses that we don't have a lot of background information about. We're not really sure at the end of uh, verse 10 who these glorious ones are. Were they angels? Were they uh, demons, you know, evil, angelic spirits? We're not really sure. But the one thing we do understand is these teachers just speak as if they're nothing. I personally think he's dealing with false spirits, evil spirits. Because we know that when we fall into sin, Satan has his servants right there by our side, luring us deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. We learn that we have the world, we have the flesh, and we have the devil. It's working against us in godliness. And so these guys are saying with their mouths, oh, it's nothing. It's just a myth. It's just a fairy tale. There's no such thing as demons. There's no such thing as, uh, uh, as evil spirits, evil angelic powers that will try to lure you away, that will involve you in spiritual bondage. You don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Just get out there and enjoy your life. And it says in 
right there in the latter part of that section where he says they speak blasphemies about things they don't understand. And it's not just that they're ignorant. It's not just that they don't know the truth. It's that they have willfully walked away from what the truth is. So they speak about things that they don't know. They blaspheme with their mouths. The second thing we see in the second half of verse 13 is that they, we learn what they see with their eyes, what they speak with their mouths, what they see with their eyes. He says at the end of verse 13, they, are, they consider it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions as they feast with you. They have eyes, there it is, full of adultery and are always looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. They are children under a curse. So, first of all, we have what they say with their mouths. They speak these blasphemous things that are contrary to truth. The second thing is what they see. They are always looking for sin, looking with their eyes for things. It's interesting, verse 14 actually has been scrubbed a little bit for our, I guess, our gentle minds. Every translation I looked at, except for one, says something like what we have here in the home, and they have eyes full of adultery. Let me tell you what that verse actually says in the Greek language. It says they have eyes full of prostitutes. Eyes full of prostitutes. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means every time they look at a woman, they think about what they could do with her if they had her for their own. They see every woman as a potential adulteress. And these are teachers these are leaders. These are men who are supposed to be teaching the truth of God, and yet their eyes are filled with things that are adulterous, things that are not honoring to God. Now, I don't know about you, but there are people that I watch sometimes, and I notice, give me one example, at the Y. I go to the Y three or four times a week to exercise, and there are some people there who are teachers and others who are part of the, you know, they're working out and stuff, and every time a, a, a young woman walks in, you see this happening. And they can be talking to you, and you're right here, and they're going, yeah, I agree with you. I know exactly what you're talking about. And their eyes, that's what Peter's talking about. These people, not only do they speak blasphemies with their mouth, but their eyes are always looking at things that are not godly. The third thing, not just what they say with their mouths, not just what they see with their eyes, but also what they seek with their hearts. Let's finish up at verse 14. They seduce unstable people. They have hearts trained in greed. They are children under a curse. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the way of Balaam, the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but received a rebuke for his transgression. A donkey that could not talk spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. All right, let's just look for a minute at verse 14. We said that these people speak blasphemies with their words. We said that they see things with their eyes that are ungodly. But what are they seeking? At the end of verse 14, we hear what they're seeking. Number one, they're seeking to seduce unstable people. That word seduce is very interesting. In the Greek language, it's actually a fishing term. Now, I'm not saying that because Peter was a fisherman, he chose a fishing term, but he may have. The word literally is lure. They lure people. They trap people. But what kind of people? Not strong, solid Christians, they trap unstable people. Not mentally unstable, but spiritually unstable. They draw them in, and they seduce them. 
by their words and by what they see. Not only do they do that, not only do they seduce them and try to draw them in, it says they have hearts trained in greed. They're only interested in what they can get out of their ministry that they're doing for Christ and for the gospel and for the church. And interesting, that word trained is a word that is the word where we get our word gymnasium. In other words, they have been to the gym of greed. They have learned how to do things just to get a benefit from it. So here Peter gives us these three qualities. What it is that they say with their mouth, what is it they see with their eyes, and what is it they seek for in their hearts. And then he gives this example in verses 15 and 16. Now, if we had another 20 minutes, we would go back to the book of Numbers and talk about Balaam. But let me tell you just kind of quickly about Balaam. Balaam was that prophet, if you remember in the Old Testament, that the king of the Midianites offered to pay money if he would come and curse the Israelites. The Israelites were moving in. They were vastly across this plain of people, of, of, of land, and the people were just filling up that plain. And Balak, the king of the Midianites, goes to Balaam and says, I will pay you money if you will come and curse these people. And Balaam said, well, I can't do anything God didn't tell me to do, but uh, let me think about that. Well, make a long story short, by the time it's over, he's on the road getting ready to go down and curse God's people. And when he goes... He doesn't do it because God told him to, even though God gave him permission in one sense, but it was because his heart was so bent on greed and on taking financial recompense, compensation for what he was doing, that his own donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way about to destroy Balaam, and God opened up the mouth of this donkey, and he talks to Balaam and tells him, you are about to head to destruction. But guess what? Balaam goes on anyway. And before it's over, Balaam doesn't curse them, but he gives Balak a strategy. And Balak takes Balaam's strategy, and they use the Midianite women to entice the Israelite men to get involved in mixed marriages and begin to pull them away from following God. That was the history of Balaam. And so what Peter is doing is he's drawing that analogy away and saying, this is the way that these people are. They lure people away because they want money, they want fame, they want prestige, they want power. That's who these people are. Now let's turn to what they do. And that's where we get into verse 17. And in doing that, Peter gives us some images. The first, images, first image is one of a spring. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he says, these people are springs without water. Now, imagine you live in an arid country. Everything is done either on foot, maybe on donkey back, on camel back. But you travel out in the elements. And off in the distance, you see a spring. You can tell because the rocks are around it. A well has been dug, and you're going, oh, I'm going to find water. I'm going to get to wet my parched mouth, drink some, satisfy my thirst. And you get to the well, you get to the spring, only to find out that it's dried up. How frustrating is that? Peter said, this is what they teach. They teach things that look so enticing, that sound so good, and yet deep down, they are nothing but empty dryness, nothing but sand in your mouth. And the second analogy goes right along with it. Not only are they springs without water, they are mists driven by a whirlwind. Now, when you think of mist, you may think like a little misty rain. That's not what he's talking about. I can remember when we were living in Tanzania, or actually when we were in Kenya in language school, often in the morning, it would be very, very misty and foggy, and we would go, oh, good, we're going to finally get some rain today. 
But then the sun would come up and the wind would blow and that mist would blow away and it would be hot and it would be dry and it would be absolutely almost unbearable to go out into the day. That's what he's talking about. He says, you know, it looks like rain is coming. Kind of cloudy, kind of misty. But then as soon as the wind comes along, it blows it all away and there's nothing left but a little faint pattering of moisture. But nothing to truly soak into the ground. Nothing to soak in. That's what these teachers do. This is how they teach. They give promises of refreshing water. They give promises of a soaking rain. But in the end, they're nothing but a dry well and an unfulfilled dream. Well, then he gives a third analogy. First, dry springs. Secondly, unproductive mist. And thirdly, in verses 18 and 19, he talks about freedom and slavery. Look what he says here, beginning at verse 18. For by, but, but, excuse me, for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Now, this is the core of this part of the passage. Do you hear what Peter says? He says, these people teach using two tools. Number one, they use the tool of boastful but empty words. They are so amazingly erudite in what they say. They sound so convincing. They can let you believe anything they want you to believe, but their words are nothing but vain, empty, hollow, worthless words. That's the hook. Are these high-sounding, highfalutin, empty words. But what's the bait on the hook? If the hook are these nice-sounding words, the bait on the hook is fleshly desires and debauchery. Now, this gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. People who are longing for their old life, they're brand-new believers. We're going to talk about that in just a second. They're brand-new, just coming out of their lost condition into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And these false teachers, with their fancy-sounding words, lure these people by their own fleshly desires, not necessarily just sexual desires, but sensual, physical, fleshly desires and debauchery, that, that pleasing of the self rather than pleasing God. They draw them in saying, hey, if you follow what we teach, you'll be free. You'll be free to do whatever you want. And yet they themselves are enslaved. The teachers themselves are enslaved by their own spiritual corruption. And Peter finishes verse 19 with a, a saying that came out of the military world. Whoever defeats you becomes your master. Whoever conquers you becomes your Lord. I mean, think about that. And whenever two countries, two nations go to battle, whichever one wins the battle, the others become their slaves. And these men, these teachers have lost the battle with sin, and so they themselves have been trapped in their own sin. And then he gives an example. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated. The last state is worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. And then here comes the proverb. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing itself wallows in the mud. 
Peter says, these teachers are like a dog that will throw up something that it ate. And then, and I'm sorry if this offends your sensitivities, but then we'll go right back and eat the very stuff that he threw up. Or a pig that you clean up, get all nice and sweet smelling. The minute it sees the mud, what does it do? It goes right back in and wallows in the mud again. Peter said, these people are enslaved. They use these high-sounding, high high-fluting words, but they themselves are trapped, and they go right back to the very things that they were supposed to have gotten rid of in their lives. Now, as we finish up, I need to draw some analogies, and I've referred to it as choices and consequences. I know I kind of ran by 20 and 21, but we're going to come back to it in just a second. So don't, don't think I've jumped it on purpose. I have jumped it on purpose, but I didn't just miss it. The first choice is the choice to walk away from the truth. You see, this is what these teachers have done. Now, if you look at these verses in isolation, it could really sound like they were saved, they were Christians, they turned away, they followed a different path, and so they have lost their salvation and they're heading off to perdition. As a matter of fact, I probably read six commentaries on this passage, and four of the six said exactly that. The technical term for that is apostasy, that a person can walk away from their salvation and lose the salvation that they had. But now, beloved, let's just think about that for a minute. When we read the New Testament in its whole, we know that salvation is not about us. Salvation is about God's honor. When God saves us, he keeps us. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that we are never, that no one and no thing can take us out of our Father's hand. So, what does that mean? That means, obviously, this passage, these are people who looked like, maybe they even gave mental assent to the Gospel. Maybe they gave verbal assent to the truths of Scripture. And yet they never truly had surrendered their lives to Christ and were converted. And so what happened was, in their temptation to gain income, to gain power, to gain prestige, they themselves were deceived, and now they have become the deceivers of others. But I don't think this is just speaking to these false teachers. He's also speaking to these young believers who are just now beginning to come out of their lost state and are beginning to come into Christ. Maybe they're not fully surrendered themselves to him. Maybe they're not fully committed themselves to Christ, but they're moving in that direction. And now they're being tempted to be pulled back away. And Peter says, don't do it. Don't make that choice. If you do that, it's going to be so much harder. You're going to say, well, you know what? I tried Christianity for a while. It didn't seem to work for me. I'm not going to go there again. Oh, sure, they may have tried it, but did they ever actually accept it? No. That's why in 1 John, you remember in 1 John chapter 2, John talks about people who were in the church but then left the church. In, in verse 19 of chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. That's what's going on with these people. They were in the church. They looked like they belonged. They talked like they belonged. They even acted like they belonged. But deep down, see, that's why I think Peter's analogy at the end is so important. The one thing you need to know about dogs and pigs is that they were both unclean animals. Let me say that again. Dogs and pigs. Dogs were not little pets. Dogs were scavengers that ate the trash and the muck and would chew on dead bodies that they would dig up out of the shallow graves. 
and pigs were unclean. And Peter says, just like unclean animals, you can clean them up, you can put a ribbon around their necks, but they still are unclean on the inside. and They'll always go back to their unclean ways. That's what Peter says. The second choice is the choice for us as Christians about what kind of lives we're going to live. The choice to live holy lives. Because you know what? It's very easy for us, let's be honest. When we start thinking about the fact that because Christ has saved us, and we truly have surrendered our lives to Christ. We truly have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We truly have turned from the way of sin and turned to Christ to say, well, I guess I can do whatever I want now. I'm saved. I'm in. Beloved, we cannot make that, that mistake. Our salvation should lead us to holy living. Our salvation should lead us to want to do the things that please God, to find that the true freedom we have is not in freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom to do whatever God wants with the blessings that come as a result of that. And you may be a firm believer, and yet you've heard a teacher, you've read a book, you've listened to a radio program, you've read something or seen something on the Internet. It sure does sound enticing. Beware. Let me warn you right now. Be very, very careful because it is so easy to go, well, I'm a Christian. I can go off on this path that will end in a way that you do not want to be and in a place you do not want to be. The third choice is the choice of freedom versus slavery. When these teachers were offering these young, unstable believers or pre-believers perhaps in some cases, the freedom what was it freedom from? It was freedom to do whatever they wanted, but what was it freedom from? It was freedom from Christ. And yet the only real freedom we ever have is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, to a lost person, they look at a Christian, they go, wow, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this. Man, you really are bound, but they don't recognize how freeing it is. I've used the analogy too many times, I'm just going to mention it. It's like the young man who looks at his buddy who's getting ready to have his bride walk down the aisle and go, man, you are putting on the ball and chain. And that young man just smiles and says, you just don't understand. You don't understand. Sure, I can't play the field anymore. Sure, I can't go out and do whatever I want anymore, but I wouldn't want to. I have found the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with, and I want to be committed to her and her own. So the choice to turn away, the choice to live a life that's not fully committed to serving God, the choice between what kind of freedom we want, and the very last choice before we close is the choice of discerning and listening. Beloved, I think that probably is the most important thing out of this passage. Peter says, I want you to be strong. I want you to be established. And I, as your pastor, am looking you through the eye of this camera lens into your eyes saying, my heartfelt passionate, lifelong commitment is to establish you in the faith, to be used by God. And I will preach the gospel again and again and again and again so that we can be firmly established in our faith. So that when those false teachers come along, when those people that try to tickle our ears and entice us away from the truth of the path that God has placed before us, we'll be able to say, not me, not today, not ever. So we need to be discerning as we listen. You turn that TV on and you get promised this or this or this or this. Ask yourself by the Holy Spirit's leadership, is that what God's Word says or is that just this man trying to tickle my ears, this woman trying to entice me 
away. You make the choice. So let's covenant together that we're going to continue to be strong, solid, Christ-following, God-honoring, Spirit-driven brothers and sisters in Christ. And those false teachers will find no place in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that these words, by your inspiration, were written in this letter from Peter to believers of his generation because they speak so truly to us because our nation and our world is filled today with false teachers. Teachers try to make the Christian life all about what we can gain now. Teachers try to convince us that we can have freedom in Christ to do whatever we want. Teachers that convince us that no matter what we do, if we'll just run to 1 John 1, 9 and confess it, we'll be okay. And they overlook your righteousness, your holiness, your justice. So, Father, today, as we look at these qualities and the character and teaching of these false teachers, may it teach us, may your Spirit teach us how to be discerning so that we will choose true freedom in Christ that we will choose to live holy, godly lives and receive the blessing that comes from that. And we will choose to never turn from the path that you have laid out for us to a path that can only lead to destruction. So to that end, Father, help us as we respond to what we've heard today. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it.